Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. I dag skal jeg tale med en af dem, som vi sætter aller, aller mest pris på på Dagbladet Information. Det er den bulgarske forfatter og samfundsforsker Ivan Krastev. Han er en af dem, der virkelig har hjulpet os med at forstå, hvad det er, der egentlig foregår i Europa. Han har også hjulpet os med at se de helt store perspektiver i coronakrisen. Og er der noget, som vi er i tvivl om nu, efter et års tid med corona og nogle kæmpe store opture og en kolossal nedtur for den europæiske union, så er det, om corona egentlig har gjort EU stærkere eller tværtimod har udstillet EU's svagheder. Spørgsmålet er, om EU med redningspakken, den grønne omstillingspakke, det nye budget, hele planen om at være en geopolitisk spiller, har taget et meget stort skridt fremad i verdenshistorien, eller om det, der er et stort skridt for Europa, i virkeligheden er et babystep i forhold til USA og Kina, der virkelig rykker efter corona nu. Og så er der en masse andre ting, som vi er i tvivl om, nemlig, hvordan skal vi forstå det, der foregår i Rusland? Hvordan skal vi forstå hele konflikten mellem USA og Kina? Og hvor skal EU stille sig i den konflikt, hvis vi skal forsvare det, vi tror på, og samtidig også træde fremad og skabe en ny og bedre verden? Good afternoon to our viewers here in Denmark, and especially good afternoon to our dear friend and guiding light, Ivan Krastev in Albania. Thank you so much for being with us, Ivan. Thank you very much. And really, the weather in Albania is so good, and the light is so strong that I can guide anybody. (laughs) Ivan Krastev, han sidder i øjeblikket i Albanien, i det albanske forårs sollys, og han har mange spektakulære analyser af det, der foregår. Så hvis man tror, EU er kedeligt, så skal man bare lytte til Ivan Krastev. God fornøjelse. I want to ask you first, Ivan, because we had this very interesting sequence uh, that both has something to do with Europe, with the pandemic, and with the economic order of the societies we're living in, where we had these oligarchs, announcing a new super football league Sunday night. And my son, who's a football fan like me, he said to me, okay, dad, you'll be socialist moaning like you always do. And we'll have 24 hours of saying, this is too bad, evil capitalism. And then we'll just watch the football in half a year. And we've gotten used to it. This is how it usually goes. They say, oh no, the Arabs can't buy Man City. The Russians can't buy Chelsea. But this time something completely different happened. And the oligarchs fell. How should we understand this event? So I do believe it's very important. It is very symptomatic because, okay, you have these oligarchs. And for them, football is business, celebrity, but business too. And the idea is how to recover the money that they lost for this one year. And they, they realize that certain things are not possible anymore. Uh, because societies are becoming much more sensitive. You cannot simply build a kind of a rich football clubs ghetto in the moment when everybody is suffering. And I do believe what has happened is simply they understood that they're going to pay a price. And particularly strong, this was in, uh, of course, in England, where society really paid a very high price, where people are just starting to recover, where for many people, football is their life, not simply their hobby. Uh And all these people understood that it's not going to work this. And I do believe it's a very symptomatic for many things. It cannot be business as usual. Uh, the moment the businesses believe that they can do everything that is going to give them profit, they're risking a lot. I think it's very difficult to see what kind of moment that we're in. 
to a certain extent, you see citizens, at least here in Denmark, they're just longing for the old normal. They want to get back to how things were. On the other hand, you see really new things happen politically. Do, do you think we're, we're at a moment that is still politically open, where, for instance, this, this neoliberal order that we've gotten used to is being challenged fundamentally? I do believe it's going to be a change, much more of a change than we have after 9-11 or after the global financial crisis, because also there was a kind of a change that's accumulated there. One of the things is that, of course, different people had a different one year. And this is quite important to see that it depends on the country in which you are. It depends basically how uh, you spend this one year, basically how you can afford this and that. Uh, But uh, we're going to see something strange, which happens in history. Nostalgia is going to bring radical change. (laughs) The moment when people wanted to be how it used to be, they're going to understand that this is not possible anymore. Because even if we're going to normalize some of the travel in Europe, for example, in several months, we're not going to normalize easily travel in the world. Uh, Then suddenly, basically, people are not going to agree that the normal laws that 70%, for example, of all vaccines are produced in one country, basically India. (laughs) So (laughs) from this point of view, there are going to be changes and the changes is also happening because this is one of the crises that affected every single person in the world. It was not true for the global financial crisis. When I spoke to you half a year ago, we just had this new uh, European budget and we have this great recovery act. And we were talking about this could be a new moment for Europe, that Europe, instead of being austerity, that they could be generating growth and really helping people. And you saw Germany abandoning their Schwarze Null. Now, half a year later, it seems that there is going to be huge growth in America. And we see the first quarter in China, they're rising dramatically. And it seems now that Europe is lagging, lagging behind. How do you see the financial situation in Europe at the moment or the, and the prospects? No, no, this is very important. And I believe probably we have uh, touched on this even in our previous discussion. One of the important things that happened for this one year is that we're living in a dictatorship. And this is the dictatorship of comparisons. (laughs) Every single day, basically, people are comparing what is happening in their countries, uh, what is happening in other parts of the world. Uh, The comparison looks very easy when we have been just comparing the number of people infected, the number of people dying, now the number of people vaccinating, but now we start to compare the economic recovery. Uh, And here is the story. In a certain way, Europe made a major breakthrough institutionally. Certain money has been committed, but Europe is a very low-risk political player, unfortunately. If you see the size of the stimulus that the Americans put and compare, with Europe, uh, basically trying to see how they're compensating for the decline of the output for this one year, it's a three to one. In a certain way, basically, Biden betted everything. He basically decided that this is either going to save the economy or destroy the economy, but this is a moment like this. While in Europe, I don't believe we have a very low risk culture. And this is something that uh, can turn to be a huge issue because imagine that in September or October, we are going to have a new lockdowns in places like Germany, for example. This is going to trigger a different political crisis of a totally different nature. Uh, because people are expecting something to happen. And you can see, for example, the Brits and the Americans, they send a message to their population. Listen, just try to see how many people I'm going to vaccinate. <laughs> if 
Everything else doesn't matter. Europeans, unfortunately, for many reasons, which we can discuss, didn't see, send a message like this. And as a result of it, in many places, you can see that people are getting impatient, people are getting angry, and they're not angry simply with this or that policy. They have the feeling that we're getting something wrong. And I was reading the latest opinion polls in Germany. Listen, Greens, four or five points ahead of CDU, CSU. Just six months after CDU-CSU was at 40, it shows you the level of volatility in the continent. Is there also an institutional problem here? Because we don't have, I mean, you're absolutely right. We're more cautious and and, and low risk than, than Americans. But we, we don't have the same capacity for, for political action that they do in China totally. or that they do in totally. Totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. And in a certain way, this was the tragedy of the Van der Leyen, because I do believe she rightly decided to use this crisis basically to show that European Union can work. Yes. And the commission took the lead on the vaccines, and she was well prepared because she has the medical practice and education, so this is not the area of public health uh, that is unknown to her. But several things happened. If you try to compare, for example, Take the Brits or the Israelis on one side. I'm going to take the Israelis, which, of course, took the, the highest risks of them all. And take the European Union. When we start to negotiate with the companies or the Americans, for the European negotiators, because of the nature of the union, first, you should try to get a very good price. Because otherwise, the member states are going to blame you that you're buying too expensive and why you're doing this, how we're going to explain to our voters. Secondly, it's going, it should be very transparent because basically how, as uh, somebody <laughs> very nicely said, Europeans bureaucrats much more fear auditors than voters. <laughs> uh, and thirdly, you should keep all these balances. The French vaccines, the German vaccines, and so on, <laughs> everything should be. On the other side, for example, you have the Israelis who overpaid 40% on Pfizer compared with Europe, but they said, they said we're going to give you all the data uh, from our vaccination, which is incredibly important for the big pharma. Uh, but what we wanted, we wanted quickly. We want to be your priority. And they have a good reasons for this. One was the elections for sure, and Netanyahu was betting on this. But the second thing that many people miss is that because around 12, 15% of the population of Israel is highly religious people who are not ready to obey the lockdown. If you are not going to be very quick recovering after this crisis, you're going to create a major social crisis. So why I'm saying this, European Union, you're right, does not have the capacity to work like this because European Union cannot declare an extraordinary situation for the mm -hmm. continent. In a certain way, this is the old Carl Schmittian problem, that the sovereign is the one who can decide on the state of exception. And from this point of view, the European <laughs> Union does not have the capacity of a sovereign. And this is why we ended up in a situation in which we have less vaccines that we should. And keeping in mind that uh, European Union is uh, a very big market, obviously we were well positioned if we were ready to risk to do it. But secondly, and I do believe many people are underestimating this, when one country decides to be overcautious, it hurts everybody else. With AstraZeneca, it was clear. Uh, for example, nevertheless, the European agency is saying it's fine. When one country said it's not fine, everybody says, no, 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 we should also say it's not fine because otherwise our people are going to believe that we're treating them worse than the Danes 
or basically <laughs> than the Germans. And this is a this is a very, very big problem for the European Union. And I do believe we're going to see the result of this problem. Second, the European Union really lost a lot out of the position of we're talking about vaccine diplomacy. There is no European vaccine diplomacy. We allowed 50% of the vaccines produced in Europe to get out, which is fine. But don't believe that anybody sees these vaccines as donated to the world. When the Russians or the Chinese uh, send their vaccines, their ambassador is waiting on the airport with the prime minister, and all of them basically are crying together. Uh, basically, nobody is crying with the European vaccine. <laughs> because it's simply companies selling to other governments. So do you think that this kind it's obvious, I think, that from, from what you're saying, that when it comes to vaccinations, we have institutional rules and and that we and, and exactly like you're saying that that we don't have the the tolerance of a state that is acting against the rules and states of, of, of exception. Do you think this really displays to the to the European citizens that we need some kind of reform? I mean, just about one year ago. It was like we can do new things. We can make a huge budget. We can make uh, green transformation. We can uh, we can protect the the digital technologies of Europe. We can make European champions. At that point, it was like the European Union is stronger than I had seen it before. Now it seems that the gap between what is expected from the Union and what it politically and institutionally is capable of delivering is growing at a time when people are really looking for political help. Do you think totally. this? Totally. And, and by the way, this is a major change because you need a really radical institutional changes in order to respond to this. Just give you one example. Americans basically responded to the crisis in a militarized way. It's not by, uh, it's not by accident that you have a military people that have been put in charge. So they have been bringing capacities. Uh, new production sites and so on, the way you react in the moment of war. Europe just cannot do this because in a certain way, paradoxically, uh, van der Leyen is buying the vaccines, but she does not own the vaccines. <laughs> uh, and one of the reasons why the member states was so happy to allow the European Commission to do it is because the liability goes to the European agency, particularly for poor countries like Bulgaria, the major story is if this vaccine is going wrong and if people start suing us, who is going to pay? <laughs> uh, and I do believe this is a very important moment because the world is moving to a much more active state. And on one level, Europe, of course, European Commission is not a classical government. They're much more constrained in what they can do. On the other side, because of the European Union, even the national governments are much more constrained. Because basically, we, as we saw, you can close your borders for a while and you can do this and that. But otherwise, if you're going just to have a policy on your own, if everybody starts uh, basically to license their own vaccines without waiting for the common European uh, policy, this is also going to create a, a tensions in the union. And as a result of it, I do believe we entered a very bad situation in which many national governments, in order to prove to their citizens that they care about them, started to break the European rules. Breaking the European rules became a kind of, listen, I so much care about you that, for example, I'm going to buy a vaccine uh, that uh, is not licensed. This was definitely also the case here in Denmark. You know, our prime minister going to Israel to show, well, this is such an extraordinary situation. So I must show, I don't care that he's a right-wing corrupt leader on Sebastian Kurz. He's a left-wing social democrat. 
but you went with him because this was an alliance that suspended all other ideologies and, and, and principle. I think this was the case here as well. Totally. Listen, this is the symbolic politics. And basically, this is also what Kurz did and what the six uh, Central and East Europeans who went into his course to Vienna, because the story is you try to send one message to your own, your own people. I'm going really to do the impossible for you. As a result of it, this is why you are breaking the rules to say, even the European rules are not going to constrain me. But listen, when everybody starts breaking the rules, then the union also starts to have a problem. In your case, you didn't break the rules. It was symbolic politics. Uh, but when you basically start buying vaccines and others, you create the following problem. If you're going to get some of the Chinese vaccines that have not been even applying for license with the European Union, other people who are going to be vaccinated with them going to be allowed to travel freely? <laughs> Do you think there was also this, we talked about this in the fall, that there was this geopolitical ambition in the new commission that Ursula von der Leyen was very explicit about how the European Union would be a geopolitical player and what, how strategic autonomy would be an ambition for, for them. And that was at a point where America was weak and the European Union, they made their own investment, or the commission made their own investment agreement with China and the Americans were, were furious about it. And it was like the European Commission was showing, well, we're not depending on you anymore. We're making our own policies with China. Do you think they, they made a kind of a geopolitical overreach? They overestimated their own capacity and they underestimated Americans. Listen, in a certain way, they were also in a difficult position. I do believe from time to time, being fair is not the worst thing that we can do. <laughs> of course, the European, uh, uh, if you're a European political leader, in the moment of a growing geopolitical polarization, particularly between the United States and China, you try to keep a much more cooperative world because Europe is very much depending on this. Because many people talk about the Cold War, but for many Europeans, I mean, West Europeans, we're not talking the East, Cold War was also the moment of a limited sovereignty because you are really very much dependent. So in a certain way, I do believe European Union decided to say, if we're going to take the initiative, if we're going to do certain things with the Chinese, with the Americans, we can uh, reduce the tensions. It didn't work. I don't believe that van der Leyen should be blamed for this. But then the European Union did something which I found wrong. When you see that the world is going polarized, trying to pretend that you not notice it, put you <laughs> in an idiotic position. So you go to Moscow in order to be humiliated in the case of Borel. You go to Turkey and you're put on the sofa. So from this point of view, in a certain way for a while, uh, we have been trying to defend the status quo that does not exist anymore. <laughs> and this is a very kind of unfortunate position. Yeah, but I, I think you're absolutely right that it's easy for me to laugh at von der Leyen four months ago because this has been for a year an absolutely open political situation and we haven't been able to predict yeah. for the next three or six months. And yeah. at the time, I totally agreed with her. Absolutely. Making the, the, I mean, we couldn't wait for the Americans. And I think Merkel was originally right when she yeah. said, we must start thinking about how we could defend ourselves. So I think that was yeah. the right ambition. But I think it puts Europe at, a, at an awkward place now be, between China and, and, and the US. How, how do you see Europe, how, how should Europe in your view position itself now at this very interesting situation with the American China being adversaries, competitors, 
and, and rivals at the same time? I don't know if it's going to be extremely difficult. Of course, it's not going to be the classical Cold War. We're not back to the 1940s for very simple reasons that we're living in a much more interdependent world. But from this point of view, for Europe, it's even more difficult. Uh, because in a certain way, when uh, uh, the Soviets and the Americans clashed in the 1940s, there was not many American goods going to Soviet Union, and basically <laughs> there was no Soviet goods going to the West. And now it's different. And as a result of it, I do believe that the first thing that Europe, unfortunately, is going to lose is that if we're going to see decoupling in the technological sphere, they're not going to be European technological sphere. Obviously, we're going to be part of the American technological sphere uh, because we're not going to recreate Google and Facebook uh, in the next two or three months. Uh, but uh, when this happens, this the idea of Europe that we're going to regulate a common technological space and that we are in a strong position exactly because we don't have Alibaba and we don't have uh, uh, Google. This does not work anymore. On climate, I do believe that European Union is trying to do its best to push for a much more cooperative agenda because decoupling on climate, nevertheless, if what we're going to do, if others are doing nothing, nothing will change. But also what I'm very much afraid of, and this is, I do believe, development for the last two months that probably very few in Europe expected to escalate so quickly, I do believe we're seeing a much more coordination in aggressive provocations on the side of both Russia and China when it comes to Ukraine and Taiwan. If you see from outside, you're going to see the coordinating timing of Chinese uh, flights uh, uh, basically violating the sovereignty of Taiwan, all these kind of uh, thousands and thousands of troops on the Ukrainian border. And in a situation like this, Europe does not have much of a choice because when it comes to hard power, the truth is that Europe did not invest enough uh, and that basically we're very much in places like Ukraine and others, depending much more on the NATO and the Americans than on our own. And I do believe this is a situation which is very much going to constrain the choices of European leaders. And it's not only on the level of the European Union. I do believe that uh, Chancellor Merkel now is uh, in a much, much more difficult position um, than she was even three or four months ago. So do you think there... I mean, it makes sense. I didn't, I didn't, I, I thought that it was very difficult for the new American president Biden to say Taiwan or Ukraine. I mean, we're, we're to focus his, his interest, trying to withdraw from it. But I didn't think that it was coordinated between the two countries. Uh, this is my feeling. And listen, I, I, I'm following Russia, of course, much more close than China. But one of the effects of this uh, geopolitical polarization was that both countries obviously started talking much more to each other. And of course, their interests uh, does not coincide on everything. Uh, but I do believe that President Trump's calculation that he can basically take the Russians on the American side was a flow thinking anyway. <laughs> uh, 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 and uh, from this point of view now, uh, President Biden is in a very difficult position because on one level, the structural nature of the Chinese-American confrontation makes it very difficult for him to change this. And I do believe that he's really worried about what he sees happening in China. On the other side, the, uh, President Putin is extremely hostile to the Democrats. For many reasons, <laughs> he basically knew what he did to them <laughs> so probably he can expect what they want to do to him. Uh, but the result of it is that you have this kind of a huge escalation on the level of sentiments uh, and 
on the level of uh, sanctions on economic policies. And here is the story. For the first time, I do believe we're in a situation in which the fear is that with the world preoccupied with COVID-19, inward looking government, politicians not physically meeting each other. In the way people get slightly kind of freaking out after this one year confined, politicians are also people. I know that many people will not agree, but politicians are also people and they're also freaking out. And the situation can get out of the control, not because one or the other side particularly have an ambition to do this and that, but because the level of uh, mistrust between the West and the Chinese, the West and uh, the Russians, and to a certain extent, even between the Europeans and Americans on a certain level, is very, very high. I think that's a very interesting and very real point that, you know, it takes the level down on all hostilities if you meet in person. Totally. And and if you imagine they're being isolated and they're just getting from their, their intelligence and, and a bit from the media and from experts, then, of course, that accelerates hostilities and suspicions. I think it's very, very difficult for Europe how it should position itself towards Russia at the moment. I mean, these sanctions, what... what How, what are they? Normally, when you put in sanctions, you show people that we're acting, we're not accepting this. And then the whole deal is how to get rid of these bloody sanctions afterwards yeah. when, when, they, when they have it. So it's like you do something. You know it won't achieve your goal. You must do something. If you do that, how do you ever get rid of the sanctions again? No, listen, for me, the biggest problem is that uh, in the case of uh, the sanctions, sanctions normally should be an instrument of a policy. They are not the policy. So in a certain way, you put the sanctions because you expect this or this to happen as a result of it. In the last five years, we basically recognized that uh, sanctions, probably with the exception of the most nuclear options on them, are not going to change Russia's foreign policy. On the other side, we cannot accept things that Russians are doing, be it with Navalny, be what is happening with uh, troops in Ukraine. So as a result of it, we start to put sanctions in the way you're putting a press release. <laughs> this is one more way to say how unhappy we are. Yes, exactly. Uh, but this is inflating the sanctions. Listen, sanctions is a very important instrument. It cannot be used simply for symbolic politics. Uh, and then now you have, uh, uh, as a result of it, a situation in which we had a famous Bulgarian writer who used to say, Every scandal in Bulgaria is just for three days, but every three days we have a scandal. Uh, so <laughs> something like this is happening in the international politics. You see what is happening with the Czech uh, diplomats and basically, yeah. and I do believe we go in an escalation, which is not because of any of the sides have a clear idea what they're going to gain strategically. <laughs> but this is just mirroring. Uh, and this could be very, very dangerous because, in a way, it's an escalation for the escalation's sake. I have one last question for you because you have a meeting in four or five minutes, and so we must we we, we end, end it quickly today. But we're just so glad that you want to talk to us again and, and take the time. I think I I have the feeling that in some of the old communist countries, there is more fear towards Russia than before that if you look at the reactions in the Czech Republic or the reactions in, in Poland, that, that tension is rising there. But I might be totally wrong. No, no, you're not totally wrong. And of course, it's different uh, from country to country. But listen, Czech Republic was one of the Russia-friendly countries in general. Uh, if you basically look, the Czech president was one of the most pro-Russian politicians. And then you have a very 
aggressive intelligence intervention that caused the life of the two Czech citizens. So from this point of view, I do believe that uh, in a certain way, there was a certain balance in policies. It's one thing to disinform and to attack you informationally. It's totally different thing basically to create an explosion in your arms towards. Uh, and this is creating uh, attention because particularly for governments that try to be very cooperative with the Russians, now they should show to their own populations that they are not in the pocket of the Russians. So now they should overreact. Yes. <laughs> well, I don't want to overreact, but I just want to thank you for taking your time yet again and helping us understand this very open and very interesting, but also a little scary situation that we have with the COVID-19. Thank you so much, Ivan Krastev. Thank you very much for the conversation. Ciao. Ciao. Det var så min samtale med Dagbladet Informations gode bulgarske ven, Ivan Krastev. Der er nogen, der bliver ved med at spørge, hvordan kan man støtte Dagbladet Information, når I udgiver jeres podcast gratis, og vi får så meget lyd, uden at skulle betale noget som helst. Og til det er svaret, I støtter os ved at lytte til os og ved at bringe vores budskab videre. Men hvis det ikke er nok for jer, hvis I også gerne vil give os nogle penge, så er alle velkommen til at tage en abonnement på Dagbladet Information, og det gør man på den her måde. Man går ind på information.dk-prøv nu. Derinde får man en måneds gratis abonnement, og så kan man jo prøve at se, om man har lyst til at blive ved, om man vil have mere, om man har brug for en avis, der sætter verden sammen for en. Jeg vil advare mod en ting, og det er, at det kan være ekstremt stærkt vanedannende. Det er der flere og flere, der oplever. Men hvis man har lyst til en ny konstruktiv og progressiv og oplysende vane, så prøv information på information.dk-prøv nu. I næste uge, der skal vi tale med en ung, venstreorienteret britisk økonom, som på meget kort tid er blevet en meget vigtig stemme på den europæiske venstrefløj. Det er forfatteren Grace Blakely, som jeg har glædet mig meget til at stille alle de spørgsmål, som jeg selv går og brænder ind med, om hvordan fanden venstrefløjen skal forholde sig til det kolossale opbrud, der finder sted i verden i øjeblikket. Og hvad er egentlig arven efter Jeremy Corbyn, der satte omfordeling, reform af kapitalismen, fælles eje på dagsordenen, men også fejlede katastrofalt med Brexit og var ude af stand til at tage afstand fra de antisemitiske tendenser i sit eget parti. Hvordan skal man arve det bedste og tage afstand fra det værste på en måde, der er progressiv, socialistisk og ansvarlig? Det vil Grace Blakely fortælle os om i næste uge.